Turn on, tune in, drop out. This phrase was made famous by Harvard psychologist Timothy Leary, who, in the 1960s, was studying whether psychedelic drugs, particularly psilocybin and LSD, could have therapeutic uses. For a lot of reasons, including that he took the drugs along with his student subjects, Leary was fired from Harvard, and LSD, psilocybin, and other hallucinogenic drugs were deemed illegal by the Food and Drug Administration. Fast forward to 2020. Psychological research with hallucinogenic drugs is a legitimate field of study again, with the FDA allowing a handful of medical research organizations to conduct what's called breakthrough therapy with psychedelics. Researchers are looking at whether these drugs can be used to treat depression, anorexia, PTSD, and even alcohol and tobacco dependence. In June, advocates in Oregon announced they had gathered enough signatures to put an initiative on the state's November ballot that would legalize psilocybin-assisted therapy. Meanwhile, Washington, D.C. voters are likely to consider a psilocybin decriminalization measure this fall, following the examples of cities including Denver and Oakland and Santa Cruz, California, which have recently passed similar measures. So what's different about today's research using psychedelics? How do drugs that have long been considered taboo in polite society become tools for treating a growing number of mental health issues? We will be delving into these and other questions today here on Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that explores the connections between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. Our guest today is Dr. Roland Griffiths. He is director of the Center for Psychedelic and Consciousness Research and a professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. The center's research group was the first to obtain regulatory approval in the United States to reinitiate research with psychedelics in healthy volunteers. Their 2006 publication on the safety and enduring positive effects of a single dose of psilocybin is widely considered the landmark study that sparked a renewal of psychedelic research worldwide. Dr. Griffiths himself has published widely on the psychological effects of sedative hypnotics, caffeine, and novel mood-altering drugs. In 1999, he initiated a research program investigating the effects of psilocybin in healthy volunteers, in long-term meditators, and in religious leaders. Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, Dr. Griffiths. Um, thank you, Kim. I'm pleased to be here. So my first question is, how did you get into this line of research? Where were you in the 1960s and what were you doing? And on a more serious note, how were you able to do studies on psilocybin in 1999? So um, my training was in psychopharmacology, an interdisciplinary uh, uh, program in psychology and pharmacology. And I uh, received my PhD at University of Minnesota and then came out to Johns Hopkins to pursue research on the on mood altering drugs. And as you mentioned, I did quite a bit of research on sedative hypnotics, caffeine and a variety of other kinds of compounds. Most of our research was focused on drugs of abuse and about 25 years ago, I started a meditation practice that got me very curious about the nature of uh, altered states of consciousness and the potential for transformative uh, change. And uh, in so doing, I became reacquainted with this 
older literature on psychedelics that uh, suggested <clears throat> that they might be useful tools for investigating the very states of consciousness that were really I was finding so interesting through meditation. And it was that that got me uh, interested enough to uh, put in uh, to our IRB and to FDA a protocol uh, to investigate what turned out to be a high dose of psilocybin and comparing it to an active control uh, compound, methylphenidate, under deeply blinded, double-blind conditions. Two volunteers who were psychedelic, naive individuals. And in that sense, it, it was a, a study that had not been done for some uh, decades after the shutdown of this research in, in the late 1960s, early 70s. So that was my, my lead in to this area. I was curious about states of consciousness. I had a personal sense of um, uh, ambivalence about whether or not uh, uh, administration of psychedelics was going to lead uh, to or fulfill the kinds of expectations that I saw uh, promulgated by psychedelic enthusiasts at, at the time. Those seemed to me to be overzealous at, at, uh, from my perspective. Um, but indeed, the results of our initial study were nothing other than uh, stunning to me. Uh, what we showed was that when psilocybin is given at a, a reasonably high dose to carefully prepared volunteers who have been very carefully screened and with whom we have spent uh, significant time uh, uh, preparing them for a psychedelic session. When it's, when it's given to these uh, people, uh, they end up reporting having had experiences that are among the most personally meaningful and spiritually significant experiences of their entire lifetimes. And they may compare it, for instance, to the meaningfulness of the birth of a firstborn child or, or death of a, of a parent. And more stunning than that was that the attributions that people made to these experiences endured over time. So months after the session, people would claim, would continue to claim that these were the continuing to be the most meaningful experiences of their lives. And they made many positive attributions in, t in terms of changes and moods, attitudes, and behavior uh, to the experiences. So there's something really fundamentally interesting uh, about uh, these kinds of experiences that uh, for me as a scientist has just been riveting to, uh, to explore because uh, so little research has been uh, done for these comp has had been done on these compounds for some number of decades. So that sounds almost magical in, in, in a sense that this could happen, that a single dose could be so 
uh, transformative for people. And I'm just wondering, how much do you know about what's happening in the brain that, that uh, may ha- make this happen? Are you doing, for example, fMRI or PET scans during the course of um, the, the administration of these drugs? Yes, we are. Uh, and just to get to your point, it seems almost magical. Um, it, it does seem unlikely, doesn't it? And and I think that that was uh, one of the reasons, I think, that the scientific community, uh, among others, uh, and the psychiatric community was reluctant to even believe that these kinds of effects uh, exist because we're unaccustomed to uh, to seeing abrupt uh, changes in, in, in the, what amounts to uh, uh, personality and treat dispositional characteristics uh, that occur uh, so suddenly but uh, can be done prospectively. So what in the world is going on here? How do we, <laughs> how do we wrap our heads around this? How do we understand it? And the answer to that is complex, and it's it's multi-level. So uh, so we know uh, qu- quite a bit about how these compounds work, but in in a larger sense, we know uh, very little. So let me just lead you through what we know and how we're trying to discover it. So psilocybin, along with the other so-called classic uh, psychedelics, which would include DMT, which is the active ingredient in uh, ayahuasca, and um, mescaline, which is the active uh, ingredient in the peyote cactus and LSD. All of these classic psychedelics have their effect, their principal effect, by binding the serotonin 2A receptor. And And we know that from uh, preclinical studies and from clinical studies in which we've given uh, receptor blockers. So that that initiates a cascade of activity. Um, and we uh, we know that uh, under acute administration of psilocybin, that there's uh, there's vast uh, network interconnectivity within the brain. There are areas of brain that are speaking with one another, if you will, that normally uh, don't. Uh, and it's, and it's, and there's some uh, organization to that. It's not just chaos. Uh, and, and, and signals of that sort have been demonstrated from uh, MRI imaging uh, studies that uh, take a look at the brain function during acute psilocybin or LSD administration. Once uh, psilocybin is uh, is eliminated from the body, those uh, uh, brain circuits uh, fall back into what appears to be a much more uh, normal-looking uh, pattern. Um, and so uh, one of the questions then is what kind of enduring changes might occur in those brain systems? And we are doing uh, before and after uh, MRI uh, studies and other imaging kinds of, of studies to try to get a sense of what, what kind of signaling is going on there. And we have um, some sense of that. One of the 
interesting observations that's been made with respect to brain function uh, is that under acute administration of the psychedelics, there's a decreased functioning in something called the default mode network. Now, that's an interesting uh, brain network that is, is usually online when people are told uh, in the scanner, don't do anything. And it's associated with mind wandering or self-referential behavior, also perseverative behavior of, of various types. It's, and uh, the default mode network function is increased in depression. It's decreased under psilocybin. And interestingly, it's decreased in long-term meditators. And so that fits with a story, if you will, of a decreased in self-referential processing, decreased egoic functioning, if you will. I'm sorry, egoic. I'm not. I'm not familiar with that word. The uh, egoic. Uh, oh, the, <laughs> oh the, gotcha. Egoic. Well, yeah. To fall back on Freudian terminology, this sense of self and this self-referential uh, uh, inner discussion that we have falls away and what's what uh, emerges from that and this is in the phenomenology of the psychedelic experience as well is the present moment so the past and the future drop away one is very present with whatever is and that and that's one of the qualitative features of these kinds of um, experiences um, as well, people often uh, uh, report um, from a phenomenological point of view uh, a, a, a something called uh, a mystical type experience, which is this sense of a interconnectedness of all people and things, a unity, if you will. And that's often coupled with a sense of preciousness of that experience and the truth value of that experience. And, and that memory for that experience is what uh, endures. So, so um, we're, we're just beginning to um, uh, explore the, the, the basic uh, brain processes there. But then there's a, you know, you can approach this at the psychological level and say, well, how are people altered psychologically? And, uh, and people make uh, these uh, uh, positive attributions to these experiences in terms of their moods, their they their moods tend to be uh, better. They're they're less inclined to become upset. They're more mindful. Uh, their attitudes they're uh, more more curious and engaged with life. They're uh, more sensitive to uh, other people. And their behaviors, people are more likely, if these are healthy volunteers, to take on oh, things, self-care activities like uh, a better diet or uh, or change their exercise routine or or uh, engage more in a more satisfying way with their uh, with their loved ones. The um, one of the constructs that we've been working with in terms of uh, explaining how people are changed enduringly is that, that of psychological flexibility. 
it seems that these experiences, uh, for whatever reasons and, and through whatever mechanisms, uh, be them basic brain functions or psychological, which of course blend at some point, uh, that they result in an increased fle uh, psychological flexibility in which people seem to have uh, more curiosity about the nature of mind. They're more able and willing to uh, endure a discomfort uh, and, uh, and they have an increased sense of uh, self-efficacy. Um, and I, and I think it's, it's that combination of things that people can, uh, that, uh, turn out to be therapeutically, uh, useful, uh, if we're studying things like the existential anxiety or distress attached to a life-threatening illness, uh, major depressive disorder or, uh, drug addictions. So what you are describing, uh, the effects of, of this drug on people, just sounds wondrous. And uh, not to be glib, but how do I get some? Um, I'm just wondering, do, do you think that this drug should be deregulated or more widely available? Because it sounds like it could help people in everyday life. Well, thank you for asking that. And the answer is I th that we need to be very cautious uh, about this, that, that the psychedelics have significant risks attached to them. And sometimes those risks get underemphasized or de-emphasized by psychedelic enthusiasts. And it's something that we have been very interested and concerned about. We conducted a large scale um, survey study in people who had used uh, psilocybin uh, in non-medical circumstances and asked them to tell us in great detail about uh, their most challenging or difficult experiences and the consequences of those experiences. So this is not, uh, uh, this, the percentages of endorsement here uh, don't represent the percentage from a first administration or a single administration. These are people, for the most part, who had used uh, psilocybin on any number of occasions, and they were describing their very worst experience. But nonetheless, the results are really quite sobering. About 10% of those people endorsed having put themselves or others at risk for uh, for serious harm. And so um, people can engage in, can become panicked or uh, confused and engage in dangerous behavior. And that could include oh, running out into traffic or, or literally jumping out of a, a window or harming someone else in, uh, in fear. But that's, that, you said that's 10%. So what about the, the rest of the folks who answered this survey? Well, they, they didn't endorse that. So, so 90% didn't, but 10, 10, 10, 10% is, is, uh, is reasonably high. Uh, another 10% said that they had, they reported enduring psychological problems, uh, uh, that lasted a year or longer after the experience. Um, and, and that's certainly a concern. 
So uh, panic is one, panic and confusion and engaging in dangerous behavior is one major concern. And the other major concern we have is that in vulnerable populations, so people who may have a predisposition to psychotic illness, uh, uh, the thought is that an experience of this sort might be enough to precipitate and or uh, enduring uh, chronic illness. And, and it's for that reason that we, from all of our clinical studies, we exclude anyone with a personal or family history of, uh, of schizophrenia. And, uh, and currently we also exclude people with bipolar disorder um, if it has uh, bipolar one, which can have uh, psychotic presentations. So there is there there is concern uh, about this. We are strong advocates, our research center, uh, for systematic investigation of uh, the risks and as well as the benefits and therapeutic efficacy of these of these compounds. And we think that that's best played out uh, using the tools of science that we have. Uh, through systematic research and ultimately regulatory trials uh, that are currently ongoing. Uh, and, and there are two companies right now that are leading uh, trials to investigate uh, psilocybin as a treatment for either treatment-resistant depression or major depressive uh, disorder. Uh, if those trials... Uh, uh, proceed and they're uh, under the uh, uh, under the direction or under the uh, control of FDA. If those proceed and are positive, then we would expect within uh, four to six years from now, psilocybin may be approved uh, uh, for medical use. Uh, and I'm thinking if it if it were, it's likely to be approved under uh, very controlled conditions in which the drug is dispensed to uh, clinics and providers who know how to manage uh, these uh, types of experiences and who can provide the screening and support during the sessions and the aftercare that is necessary to optimize experiences and minimize risks. So it would be kind of what you're doing right now, where there would be people present at the time that somebody took took the drug. Maybe you can talk about that and, and what the therapists do while they're sitting there, because I would be concerned. I mean, it still would be possible, even though you're carefully screening your participants, uh, for somebody to have what, what we from the 60s and 70s would call a bad trip. What, what happens then? Yes. Yeah. Well, let me describe uh, the setup for the uh, sessions, um, and, and then then we can go into some of those uh, more difficult experiences. So, uh, so people are are carefully screened. We do psychological uh, testing with them. We go through a full skid. Uh, we uh, we need to assure ourselves that we can develop. A rapport and trust with them because these experiences at high doses of something like psilocybin can be very disorienting and people can feel really quite psychologically vulnerable. Um, 
So we spent maybe eight hours uh, in uh, contact time with them, and there are two therapists involved uh, in this prior to the, the session. The uh, uh, psilocybin session itself involves people coming in, having had just a very light, uh, 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 low-fat breakfast, taking a capsule that contains synthesized uh, psilocybin, and then we have them uh, lay on a couch for uh, the day. The uh, psilocybin effects last anywhere from uh, from six to seven hours. We have them lay on the couch with eye shades and headphones through which they listen to a program of music. We ask people to direct their attention inward on their inner experience. And there are two therapists or guides present uh, throughout, the, uh, throughout the session day. And they're there to provide reassurance to the individual should they feel uh, anxious or uh, distressed. And so we're, we're essentially creating this self, this safe container for people to feel really quite vulnerable and explore the inner workings of their mind, if you will. The invitation is now this is not so it's not a guided session per se. We're not uh, trying to uh, uh, ask asking people uh, uh, to go any place in particular. What we're doing is asking people just to be with whatever it is that they're experiencing. Um, now, very often uh, and, and very commonly, there'll be uh, uh, visuals, uh, uh, images may appear or patterns may appear, but that does, it's not true of everybody, but for, uh, for many people, emotions may vary widely from, as I described, kind of transcendent, uh, and, uh, and open-hearted to experiences of, of really great anxiety or fear um, and anything uh, uh, in between. Um, people at the, on these high doses are, are really um, often incapable of navigating around the world in, in any normal circumstance. These are very high doses. Of, uh, of psilocybin. We check in with the volunteers throughout the session, and if they're experiencing significant anxiety or fear, uh, we'll provide reassurance to them. We may take their hand, tell them they're doing just fine, that there's reassure them that there's nothing in the experience that can harm them. And what we invite them to be is curious and interested in the nature of the experience. And that's one of the profound teachings that come out of these experiences. And that is that the, the mind is a remarkable playground of, um, of uh, objects that emerge, thoughts that emerge in mind, uh, images that may emerge in mind. But that's just it. It's a play of consciousness. And if one can recognize that, even if what is emerging is fearful imagery or fearful thoughts, 
then one comes out with just a renewed sense of uh, control and um, and uh, ability to tolerate and be interested and curious with whatever it is that emerges in mind, be it pleasant or unpleasant. And, and I think therein lays part of the power of the psychological flexibility, because if one comes out of an experience having faced their demon, if you will, and that could be literally uh, uh, or figuratively, um, you know, a, a vision of a demonic uh, figure that's about to destroy them. But it may as well come in the form of feeling that they're dying or uh, the feeling that they've gone insane and they're never going to get back to consensual reality. These uh, these difficult experiences can take any form and shape and they'll be unique to the individual. But if one can um, experience that and stay with it and and uh, and see it for what it is, and that is that it's a, simply a temporary illusion of consciousness, then one comes out of those experiences and is able to engage in normal everyday life and the difficulties one normally faces in life and recognize the extent to which they're wrapping their own thoughts around and they're and they're and they're becoming their own worst enemy uh, in how they're holding their experiences of life. And therein, I think, lies the power of this psychological flexibility. So some of the people you have worked with are terminal cancer patients, right? And uh, I think they're uh, what I've read is some of them kind of confront the idea of of death, and then when they come back from having taken the drug, they are less fearful and are able to live a what's left of their lives in in a very mystical state almost. Yes. So that uh, the first clinical population that we worked with uh, were individuals who had a life threatening cancer diagnosis and had significant anxiety or and depression, and we thought um, these this you know certainly was among the most difficult existential dilemmas that uh, we as uh, sentient human organisms can uh, can face. And the remarkable thing about that was that um, people had these experiences, sometimes of a, a spiritual uh, nature, uh, but you know, not not always. Uh, but there was a larger framing that came out. Now, now some people would make the claim that their experience. Um, uh, uh, reassured them uh, that uh, uh, that uh, death was just an illusion, and and of course we have lots of religious traditions that uh, teach uh, just that. But that wouldn't that's not a necessary um, outcome. There's a, another way of holding these experiences that um, and and so the interpret the precise interpretation of this is going to vary. And I think it's going to vary depending on the culture of the person and some kind of pre-existing, uh, 
you know, ideas or dispositions. So kind of if you believe in an afterlife, you may experience that sense? Yes. And some people go in not believing in an afterlife, but come out uh, believing in the possibility of an afterlife. Um, but, uh, you know, other people would, would say uh, what they really appreciate is just the larger mystery of what we don't understand about about this whole project of what it is to be a conscious human being, that there's an elegance to being a sentient human being. There's a connectedness to this project of consciousness that's all around us and, and to which we're sensitive, uh, that is, uh, is so marvelous and so inscrutable uh, that there's, there's something absolutely beautiful about this play of life. And so people are, are much more content to just live their lives and they recognize everyone is going to die at, at some point. And so the anxiety somehow just, uh, for many people, just drops away and they're able to live their life more fully, whether or not they believe uh, in uh, an afterlife. I, I should say that <clears throat> one of the things that we're seeing across these studies, though, is this altered sense of, of, of what we believe uh, reality to be made up of, that it's a, it's a much larger project uh, than many people have here to have contemplated prior to going into these sessions. Uh, that there's, it's simply much more, it's much larger and, and more mysterious. Uh, and there's a sense of humbling that comes out of having that uh, experience of really a sense of astonishment at the largeness of the project and a sense of gratitude that comes out for being gifted this opportunity to be this um, sentient, uh, highly evolved human creature walking the face of the earth uh, who, and we find ourselves with this astonishing fact that we are aware that we're aware and it's and it's really <laughs> so puzzling you know but it's the very nature of what it is uh, to be um, a conscious human uh, uh, entity uh, and uh, and there's uh, there's grandeur and beauty and humility that uh, comes out of that so you you alluded to um using hallucinogens to overcome alcohol addiction. I'm just wondering, um, that sounds almost counterintuitive that, that a drug that makes you in some sense feel, if not high, at least ecstatic. How could that be effective to help someone who's got a substance use disorder, who's probably using the substance to feel some kind of, if not euphoria, at least to feel somehow better? Uh, how does that work? Yeah, well, one one point I'd make uh, right off the top is that the classic psychedelics are not considered drugs of addiction. Um, the National Institute on Drug Abuse does not uh, can uh, classify them as drugs of addiction or or dependence. They don't. They're not self-administered by laboratory animals. Why they may produce 
positive states of consciousness, they also produce very negative states of consciousness. As a matter of fact, the um, addiction research uh, center in Lexington, Kentucky, that developed a lot of original measures uh, of subjective effects of drugs had something called the LSD scale. And that scale, that was a, a rating scale people completed, that scale was thought to be a prototypic scale to measure dysphoria or unpleasant effects of drugs. So um, so these certainly don't uh, routinely produce uh, po positive effects. Um, and and uh, I should say, I didn't mention, about 30% of people undergoing our trials, which are optimized for producing uh, positive changes, uh, about 30% will report having had uh, a deeply fearful experience at some point during that session. And now that it may be of short duration or longer duration, but um, these that aspect of the experience is is not um, escapable. But you ask a good question. So why would these be useful for uh, uh, drug addiction? So when we initiated our first study in the addictions, we we actually chose um, uh, tobacco dependence. And they, these are studies that have been done by Matt Johnson and our group. And and uh, and we thought we didn't want to start out with cocaine or alcohol or opiate dependence because we we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know that uh, if these were going to have positive effects. And and we ran a initially a small pilot study in 15 chronic cigarette smokers and and combined psilocybin administration with cognitive behavior therapy for uh, cigarette smoking cessation. And and the results showed that 80% of that group was abstinent, biologically uh, verified abstinence at six months. Now that that's actually an outrageous, <laughs> outrageous uh, outcome uh, for cigarette smoking. Because it's uh, so high. It's so high. It's just, it's un un unthinkably high. And, um, and so we now are proceeding, Matt's running a comparative efficacy study comparing a psilocybin intervention with, um, with nicotine replacement. But other investigators, uh, Michael Bogenschutz at uh, New York uh, University is doing very promising work in alcoholics and uh, he's seen a very positive signal there. And Peter Hendricks down at uh, University of Alabama in Birmingham is uh, showing a positive signal with cocaine uh, in uh, in his preliminary studies. And we're about to launch a study in uh, opiate uh, users. So uh, it's it it does appear and this is one of the remarkable features of uh, of the psychedelics as therapeutics, it does appear that they have um, uh, uh, cross uh, or transdiagnostic uh, efficacy, uh, that they, they act across a range of different conditions. So, you know, we're accustomed to treating drug dependence uh, with a pharmacological uh, 
uh, tool that's specific for the receptor and the and the drug for which people are dependent on. So, like like methadone for heroin addiction. Correct, and, and nicotine replacement for uh, uh, for cigarettes. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, but here we have this intervention that appears to be efficacious ac- across uh, a range of drugs. And again, uh, it's pointing toward this psychological flexibility as being the mediator of this, you know, rather than uh, interacting at a specific receptor site uh, system that's underlying the, uh, the addiction process of that of the particular uh, problematic drug. Uh, so just a, a last question. Um, we may have listeners who are experiencing depression, substance use disorders, or other mental health problems who think that this kind of therapy sounds like something they would like to participate in. How do they get involved? And if not at Johns Hopkins, um, where, where can they apply to become participants in tests and trials? Yes. Yeah, so as I mentioned, there are two entities that are running clinical trials right now. And uh, except <laughs> for uh, for all research centers being shut down, at least temporarily, that uh, those trials will uh, continue. And uh, and that's uh, the USONA Research Institute and uh, Compass Pathways. Uh, and and if, if people Google those, you can find them online, uh, you can enroll in their trials. Both of those companies have uh, a, a series of sites across the country that are enrolling volunteers. We're enrolling volunteers for the USONA trial at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, but, but there, I think there are about 10 sites across the country for each of those uh, entities. And so people could uh, uh, apply for those uh, studies. That said, uh, you know, the inclusion, exclusion criteria are substantial and people uh, may get randomized to a um, a placebo or a a very low dose uh, condition. Um, But that's the nature of what's required in order to run regulatory trials. Sure. Great. Well, Dr. Griffiths, thank you so much for joining us today. This conversation has been um, enlightening on many, many levels. Yeah, let me just add that uh, uh, your listeners could also look up our center website. If you Google Hopkins Psychedelic, you'll find the center, the Johns Hopkins Center for Psychedelics and Consciousness Research. And we're running a number of studies through our center uh, and, uh, and some of which we're recruiting uh, from out of state. So if you look at the, uh, the studies that we're recruiting for and, and those are, are consistent with a, a medical condition you have or interests that you have, you should feel free to uh, complete the online screeners. Great. We can add some of that information to the program notes that we'll put on our website. Okay, great. Great. Thank you. For our listeners who want to learn even more about the use of psychedelics and psychotherapy, you can also read the cover story in the March 2020 issue of The Monitor on Psychology, the magazine of the American Psychological Association. You can find it on our website at apa.org slash monitor. If you have comments or ideas to share about our podcast, send us an email at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. 
That's speakingofpsychologyalloneword.org. Please consider giving us a rating in iTunes. It really helps. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to our website and get all episodes at www.speakingofpsychology.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Kim Mills with the American Psychological Association.